Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 569. As Kyle barrels back into the room. Way to make noise in the intro, Kyle. It's what I do. Is that what you do? Part of it. It's on my business card. We were trying to figure that out for the, the longest time. <laughs> you know there was a Reddit thread that was just, what is Kyle's job? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> it was interesting because there were things in there like, oh, I should include that on my list of tasks I do. Yeah, you can follow you can follow Kyle at Kyle Clark is Rad yeah. on Twitter. Fun fact, people started sending me pictures of five dollar bills, or one guy sent me a bunch of pictures of different guys named Buck. Mm. Oh, that's very intro. clever. I was real impressed. Woke up and was delighted this morning to find that. Well maybe you'll get some pictures of Ben Franklin. Oh yeah. Right? It's all about the Benjamins. So just send him <laughs> pictures of people named Benjamin. There we go. That's and the new name. Posters of the film Benji. Benji. Ooh, that dog's so cute. Yeah. My mom named her dog Benji. I was Aww. like, really, Mom? And she was like, but he looks like a Benji. We named our dog Khaleesi, so I can't get real judgy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The best is people are like, oh, is that Hawaiian? We're like, no, it's still Dorakki. <laughs> our dog's a mother of you dragons. Get a, you get a, she only has dragon stuffed animals. Oh, that's it's fucking real adorable. Cute. <laughs> is your dog super hot? Yeah. Oh, cool. This episode is Michael Sheen. Who is a, a wonderful British actor who right now is on Masters of Sex, Sunday nights, on Showtime. He's also in the upcoming movie Kill the Messenger out October 14th. He was also in uh, Frost Nixon. He sure was. And he also... Um, Say it. <sighs> he was in one of my favorite movies. And what's that movie? Underworld. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I just kept waiting. Is he going to turn into a wolf? And then realized that's not a real life thing. And then got a little sad. Then was like, well, he's still very charming. He he rules the lichens. He does. You know what's really great is that he drew a werewolf in our... Did he? In Chewbacca? In in Chewbacca, our guest book. Yeah. So Michael Sheen. And Michael is also uh, um, uh, the beau of Sarah Silverman who uh, dropped in with him and so chimes in periodically uh, to, I'm going to say, hilarious results. I've so enjoyed hanging out with Sarah on this oddball tour. I never, there are, it's like, you have to go out of town to hang out with some of your friends, but it's been so much fun. We we, we we were travel buddies, so we synced up our travel so we could like fly. Do the oddball comedians use the buddy system? We use the buddy system. I like yeah, it. I, I like that. That way you're not losing a Bill Burr in an airport. Yeah, yeah. You know, all Bill Burrs look alike, so make sure that yours is tagged. Most definitely. When they come out of the conveyor belt. Um, so here we go. There's a podcast with Michael Sheen with um, light occurrences of... It's almost like a meteorological... <laughs> It periodically rains down Sarah Silverman. It's uh, some some light Silverman shadows. Cloudy showers. with a chance of Silverman's. That's right. Here we go. Number 569. Yeah. Number 569. <laughs> I think maybe we... Did we cover that? We did. Okay, good. It's schematic for uh, blowing someone of the same gender that then's of an opposite gender in another dimension. That's right. When did we come up with that? 567. Oh, that's fantastic. Right? All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just getting blown my interdimensional doppelganger. <laughs> the dream. <laughs> now entering Nerdist.com. Here we go. We're starting. Are you ready? 
Are we? Did we get the thumbs up? Yeah. Thumbs up from Katie. I've been recording. What? I've been recording. Oh, okay. Well, you don't have to brag about it. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I'm so sorry, Michael. Let's get this. Sarah, you can sit over here. Where's Matt? Is Matt? He does. He's writing, and Jonah's working. They're both working. Wow. Everyone's grown yeah. up. They're working at the Genius Bar. At- <laughs> <laughs> I, I say that sarcastically. Oh, hey, Genius Bar. But he doesn't work at the Genius Bar anymore. Uh, Michael Sheen, there was a very delightful moment which I captured on um, digital uh, imagery of when we were flying to, when Sarah and a bunch of the comics were flying to, I think maybe Chicago or something. I captured the exact moment where Sarah opened the New York Times and realized that you guys were a giant story in the New York Times and she had no idea. So this was the shock registering on your face of like, oh, fuck, that's us. I can't believe you took a picture of that. That was incredible. <laughs> yeah, I got it the moment right after. You, yeah, so that's, that's, that's you registering that that's... You guys. That's Sarah pretending that she didn't know that it was in no, the No, that's what I told my class and I go, if I were Chris, I would probably be like, you're full of crap. Like, you knew it was in there acting like, I'm just going to read the New York Times today. But I really didn't know. I believe everything everyone tells me. So I, there isn't any part of me that is, you know, if someone says, I didn't know, I would go, okay, I guess I didn't know. It's very easy to trick me. Mm. I'm way too gullible. That's why Sarah likes you. She's a... Constant liar. <laughs> okay, so you guys have some stuff to work out. Do you want to? You have to. What, what was it become? I was just watching. <laughs> now I feel like torn. What was the story? What was the story about? Uh, it was an interview with me that uh, Sarah somehow managed to get into. Like, <laughs> like she somehow managed to get into this. What? Oh shit! <laughs> you asked me to come. I was just gonna watch. I asked you to come, else. not be in it. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it if my if my sparkle is if my light shines too much. Yeah. Here's a bushel. Go and put your light under it. <laughs> I can't believe you brought a whole bushel. That's so strange. Yeah. Most <laughs> I thought about bringing just a few, but I ended up bringing the entire bushel. I went the whole hog. Um can I talk to you for a second about Underworld? Is that okay? Me or Sarah? Uh, you- <laughs> Sarah, did you see Underworld? This is really awesome. That's yeah, I have Sarah uh, to Michael about. Sheen on, on my DVR. I get anything he's listed in. <laughs> Underworld is one of those movies that got so under my... Like, in a good way, got under my skin. I watch that movie, like, once a year. I will go back and watch it again. Mm. I've bought that movie on so many different forms of media. <laughs> uh, but you make an excellent... Uh, do you have it on Laserdisc? <laughs> I have it on... No, I don't have a giant Laserdisc. I do. The, you do? Uh, they made Underworld on Laserdisc? No, but I do have an actual Laserdisc player. Do you... From do you, the 80s. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The, uh, so you still have all the Criterion collections? No, stuff? I only had three films. Uh, Stir Crazy. Oh, you Clash. stir crazy on Laserdisc? Yeah, Clash of the Titans um, and Midnight Express. They were the only three films I had on Laserdisc. Okay, so stir crazy. I've seen that movie a million times. It's classic. Prior Wilder, fucking incredible movie. Mm-hmm. Clash of the Titans probably shouldn't be on Laserdisc because you probably don't want to see how bad I'm the talking, effects are. I'm talking original Clash of the Titans. Oh, no, effects, I know. I know. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah no, the, the effects one... are brilliant. That, that, the, the, the terrible flying sort of Pegasus, Pegasus horse yeah. was and the, awful. The, the, the weird... Mm, Plastic Kraken. 
Yeah, and the guy with sort of like a tail and weird little nubby horns. Yes, that's, um, oh, that's uh, Andromeda's, uh, the guy that he's cast down. Oh, what the fuck is his name? Uh, yes, yes. Him. That guy. Um, but that Mr. Tumnus. Mr. T- <laughs> Mr. Tumnus. Yeah. Mr. Tumnus is goddamn delightful. Yeah. This man is a demon spawn. But I, I seem to remember there being some, like, was, it, was that Ray Harryhausen? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Harry Hamlin... As yes. uh, as Perseus, that's right, and Laurence Olivier as Zeus, as Zeus, one and of Ursula Andress as Burgess Meredith, the woman as Burgess Meredith. He was played that's Burgess right. Meredith in that movie, Ursula Andress. That's yeah, right. Burgess Meredith, which was such a strange casting to have Burgess Meredith be like, "By the gods!" <laughs> like it's such a strange. He did not belong in that movie, but no. But that was that was an era of special effects where there's a one there's a one scene where Perseus is fighting this scorpion that was made from the blood of Medusa's mm. head, mm. and uh, and so the way that the effects were done is that they had this weird stop motion thing, but it was clear that he was fighting in front of a screen that they were projecting the ba- they were ah. projecting the the stop motion on. Yes. So they weren't even compositing. They were like in real life compositing by having him what it looked like was fight a movie screen. <laughs> I always get like Ray Harryhausen's effects mixed up. The, I know that the skeletons that come out of the ground are Jason and the Argonauts. Which is the the, the the clashing rocks where there's the two brass things that the boat has to go under. Is that Jason and the Argonauts as well? Or, or is that Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger? Yeah, now you see, this is the thing. I get Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, Jason and the Argonauts, and Clash of the Titans confused in terms of the effects. I opened for Sinbad once. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? And does he indeed have the Eye of a Tiger? He does. He is a... I didn't really. I just wanted a little bit of attention. You guys keep going. You're doing great. <laughs> okay, thanks, man. Um, but... Uh... I loved all those old movies, and still, uh, and still catch up every once in a while. Like Clash of the Titans, though, it that movie for some reason, I as a kid was so important to me, and I can't remember hmm. what it was. It was, it was. I watched that movie so many times, but I can't. But watching it now, I really am. Is it because you you used to fly off on a winged horse every night to go and watch pagan dancing? That's when I started doing that, when Mm. I realized that that was actually a possibility, that you could just summon a Pegasus and that it would take you off to... By the way, they completely fucking bastardized the Kraken and made it this weird ape lizard thing with multiple... Like, a Kraken is like a squid creature, right? It's like a giant... Yeah, I imagine sort of like swamp thing but under the water. Isn't it? No, but it's it's sort of like the bigger. It's like a giant squid. It's oh, not is like, it? It's not. It's not like a giant. It's 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 not like an anthropomorphic lizard being with multiple arms. Like ah. it's a, it's like a squid creature. I have a completely skewed concept of what the kraken is. Clearly. Is this is this the kraken lore that you're getting over across the pond? <laughs> I think it is. We're going to go all the way with this. Is this part of Margaret Thatcher's kraken lore? <laughs> she sunk the kraken as it was exiting the no sail zone. Oh, so you played Tony Blair. Is that ever weird for you? Or do people, do people not realize, like, oh, well, that was a character that I played? Or do they? Yeah. Well, I think it's probably weirder for Tony Blair, who apparently, when he visited L.A., had people coming up to him going, you were really good in that movie. <laughs> so it was probably slightly stranger for him. They were like, you're really good in Frost Nixon. He was like, I was not in. <laughs> yeah. I was not in that movie. Yeah. Is it, uh, do, do, do you kind of get... Uh, 
I don't know. Do, do people can people separate you from character from the characters in the movie, or do they? I don't know. It, it sort of depends. Like you'd think that because of the variety of things that I've done, that people would be able to. But um, but I think uh, like there are very separate audiences for different things. Like the audience for Twilight, yeah, is not necessarily the audience for the Queen. What are you saying? I don't understand. I, I'm I'm just saying that there is some divergence here in the. Uh, you're in Divergent too. I am in Divergent too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not in that. So but are you? Saying... People tend. I've got my my bearded career. Mm-hmm. So if I'm walking around with a beard, people mm-hmm. might recognize me from Underworld, where mm-hmm. I am bearded. Um, uh, but if I've got if I'm clean shaven, people might recognize me from The Queen and Frost Nixon and things like that. Uh, and if I'm walking around with very long, straight black hair and red eyes then people might recognize me from Twilight. And those same tween girls are like, please do another political biopic. Yeah. yeah. We loved Frost Nixon. <laughs> They're constantly screaming at me as I run down the street. So I have a question um, for Mr. Sheen. What was Mr. Nixon like? What? Isn't that a question? Yeah. Yeah. It's- but but you have but you have this, you have a great actor face because you can disappear into so many different types of. Roles. Are you saying I'm bland? No, is that, that is not. That is the opposite. I have of what a bland I'm face. I'm saying you're transformable because Lucian, like the long stringy hair, and the, I I didn't realize right away, like oh, that's the guy from Frost Nixon. Like I didn't right. make the connection. Actually, funny enough, um, Underworld three and Frost Nixon came out on the same day. <gasps> yeah. Which one made more money? Um, I think neither. I think you have to make you have to make over a certain amount for it to say that it made money. Um, but nevertheless, I got quite a thrill from the fact that they came out on the same day. Was Underworld three the Rise of the Lycans? Yes, it was. Yeah, I'm familiar. <laughs> yes, it was. It was my origin story. <laughs> I remember. You know the way that Victor took you down just because you were fucking his daughter was really yeah. not cool. Not cool at all. But I'm sorry that happened to you. Thank you. Because the problem with Underworld is that um, my character never gets any older. Right. And has to be in, therefore, very good shape. Right. And it gets, each film that I did, it got harder and harder to get in shape. I just noticed that with um, uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. Mm-hmm. Where it's, it's a Wolverine, they even say the thing like, you never age, so you'll totally <laughs> fit into the past. And it's just the onus being on Hugh Jackman, to if he continues to do these, that he can never... He all, but although somehow he gets way more ripped. Yeah, every time. Um, where did you guys meet? JD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I went to uh, a benefit at Largo, oh. and uh, we were introduced by Mr. Mark Flanagan, who uh, oh Flanny, who runs Largo, uh, and uh, and then. Um, he and Sarah were playing tennis the following day together. That's right. And he emailed me <laughs> and, said, uh, and said, I'm playing tennis with Sarah Silverman. She took quite a shine to you last night. And I said, oh, really? And, um, and we started an email conversation. Turned out she hadn't taken a shine to me. And he had also said to her that I had only come to the benefit because I had a crush on her. Neither thing was true. Oh, my gosh. What a shifty Irishman he is. Yeah. I know. And yet somehow it's all worked out well. But then it gave us both, we were so confident on our yeah. first date. Because I was like, mm, he likes me. So maybe it worked. It did. Your joke answer of J-Day was better than mine, which was uh, like and mingle. And I'm sorry that I had to say it. <laughs> but it just... I, I, I think it's great. No, I shouldn't have backtracked. I should have said it at the time. <laughs> like and mingle is excellent. Like 
and mingle. Like and mingle. That's great. It works yeah. on so many different levels. That's brilliant. Uh, so you, but you live here in this, you live here in, in California. I, I've lived here for about, uh, 13 years now. Oh, you have? 13 years. Oh, you're a California now. Yeah. yeah. Does it affect your, when you go home, are people like, what happened to your accent? Is it, are we shaving your accent away? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think I've sound, I sound Californian. I think I still sound vaguely British. Like oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different country. And that's a made up creature. They don't exist. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? No, Mark Flanagan's a leprechaun. <laughs> Very large leprechaun. Um, a, man, a man who goes around like just pairing people up magically. Yeah. Everything that guy touches has some sort of a weird magical element to it. Like the entire... Like Largo feels magical to me. Like it feels like a portal to a magical world every time I go in. It is amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Do you? Uh, were you a, a stand-up fan before... Uh, yeah, I mean, kind of. I didn't go to see a lot of stand-up. Um, my friend Clint introduced me to uh, places like Meltdown and Largo and kind of opened up a whole new world in L.A. for me, really. Mm-hmm. When I first got here, I didn't really know, you know, what was going on or where to go and do it. I just sat in diners reading Stephen King books all day, quite literally. That's what I did. And... Um, and I'm also quite quite nervous about going out into the world. Usually, I kind of stay within small spaces and then very slowly venture out. Um, and uh, so it took a long time for me to find things that I actually liked doing here. And that wasn't because of LA; that was because of me. And um, so finding places like Meltdown and like Largo kind of opened up Los Angeles to me in all kinds of ways. Which favorite Stephen King book? Uh, single book, standalone book, mm-hmm. The Stand. Uh, series, Dark Tower series. Nice. Gunslinger. Um, and our, uh, mine's Pet Cemetery. Uh, mm, I know. Dark book. Well, it's great. Mm, the I, only one he apparently he regrets writing. Really? Nah. He For some reason, he doesn't like a lot of the things that are connected to him that I like. Hmm. What's that saying? <laughs> that, <laughs> that I'm never going to meet Stephen King on Like and Mingle. <laughs> that um, get on famously. <laughs> are you uh, the, are you a fan of Joe Hills? Are you a fan of Lock and Key? Uh, I haven't read any of uh, Joe Hill's stuff yet, but I am looking forward to it. I've heard so many great things. Lock about and Key is so much fun. Yeah. and you can you can really tear right. You can just rip right. I'm just it. I'm focusing on becoming best friends with Stephen King first. Even though the, I know some people who know him who've said, oh, well, we, you, I could get you to meet. But I feel like that's cheating. I go to his house in Maine and I stand outside his front gates and I take pictures of myself there. And I wait until he might come out and go, hey, come on in. And it hasn't happened yet. I think it was somewhere like this. Hey, come on in. <laughs> I went to, uh, in, in, in Bangor, Maine, mm-hmm. which was like a pilgrimage for me, going mm-hmm. to this place that has stood in as dairy or, you know, whatever in a lot of his books. And uh, it was a grey, rainy day in Bangor, Maine. And I went to the Stephen King bookshop, which only sells Stephen King stuff. And uh, the guy who works there gave me a little sort of photostatted map of Bangor with all the Stephen King things on it. So like the stovepipe from it and all that kind of stuff oh. and the canal. Uh, and, uh, and I went around in my car with my girlfriend at the time who had no interest whatsoever and just drove around to each place on the map and stood there and kind of took pictures of myself there and got a thrill. And then eventually it ends, the map ends with Stephen King's house. So uh, my girlfriend at the time said, I'm not going there with you. So she sat in the car round the corner, parked around the corner, and then I just stood <laughs> in front of the in front of his gates, which has little cobwebs, metal cobwebs and spiders on it. 
It is pretty amazing that that's just a daily part of his life. Yeah. Just people coming up. Weird and, people hanging on. Well, outside. because you're such a good actor, something that you might want to consider doing, mm-hmm. um, dressing up like Stephen King, <laughs> shooting a video of you going, hello, Stephen King, I'm you, Stephen King. <laughs> and you know who'd be a really good friend is Michael Sheen. Have you seen Masters of Sex? And, then, and just do a real spot on... Which to him might feel like the equivalent of a boardwalk style caricature, uh, but I really think it's your shot. I actually have worked on for the last three years a pageant based on all of Stephen King's novels, and I act out all the parts. And I'm going to do it outside his front gates one day and see if that gets his attention. There is li- <laughs> there's literally no reason that you should not do that. No, I'm going to do the entire Dark Tower series. As shadow play outside his uh, <laughs> outside his cage, I will go with you and tape that. Okay, and then we will send it. that to Stephen King together. I mm. will hand deliver it. I will have it made onto laserdisc because I guarantee. I feel like Stephen King probably has a laserdisc player. Yeah, that he has not definitely in a really long time. Wouldn't it be amazing if he had only three films and they were Clash of the Titans, <laughs> Stir Crazy? Um, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? I, that for some reason that seems totally plausible to me. I don't know why I picture the inside of Stephen King's house to look like the haunted mansion from Disneyland. Mm. Just the bat. I wouldn't be surprised. I've never understood why the ta- you know the talisman that he yeah. wrote with Peter Strope. Never understood why that never got made into a film. I mean, it, do you it's, know why? I don't know why. It's it probably you know it, it, just knowing just kind of having a vague understanding of how the film business works it's probably a situation you know it could be like oh someone optioned it it sat on a shelf mm. that executive got fired it got buried he never or maybe he just didn't want to do it mm. I don't know there's a new uh, film of it being made apparently yeah that's kind oh. of interesting well I wonder his uh, his his stuff's really tricky to translate yeah well my because i don't i'm not a big horror fan i don't really like horror it it scares me which i suppose is what it's meant to do but i don't enjoy that particularly um and so and the thing that i love about stephen king's books is that i find them very moving a lot of them the ones i really like are are not just sort of horror lots of horror stuff going on i love the characters i love the kind of world he creates and i find it very moving what he writes about and um so I think the the ones that have made the best films, in a way, I'm thinking of things like Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. Green Mile, are the ones that don't rely on the horror, that it's sort of just based, it's based on the characters or Stand By Me and, and things like that. Um, and I think people maybe, and I, and I guess what Kubrick did with The Shining as well, in a way, was kind of go for something slightly different to what, and that's what he didn't like about it. Right. Um, so I, I think that's why it is tricky. People are drawn to doing films of his books, because of what they think is most popular about them. But actually, I think they miss the point of what's popular. Yeah, and then every once in a while, you get cat's eye. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, it had some charm to it. (laughs) The Dead Zone. What about the Dead Zone? Remember the... uh, Oh, the Dead Zone. Martin Sheen and Christopher Walken, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then later... Sharon Allen. Yeah. And then later... uh, And then later... um, uh, Michael... uh, No. Michael, this is a fucking breakfast club. Breakfast club, weird science. Michael. Pat, Pat, uh, the, the three names. Yes, Michael. It's not Michael. Michael Boutros Boutros Gali. It's not Michael Boutros Boutros Gali. It's uh, Michael. Anthony Michael. 
I just gave birth to a brain oh. baby. Anthony Michael Hall. No, what threw Anthony. me was the Michael, Michael, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Which traumatizes me anyway, because that's essentially the soundtrack to my life. Michael, 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 Michael. How did I just brain fart Anthony Michael Hall? Like, I've seen every... Oh, I'm so disappointed with myself. And by the way... Oh, just... sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> did you just realize it was Anthony Michael Hall? That, yes, he did. They made a series. He made the, the TV version of Dead Zone. Yeah. Ah. You probably wondered why I was trying to yeah, dig up. Yeah, I had no Michael. idea. They did a TV series of Dead Zone, which lasted for a handful of seasons. Yeah. I was about to... I thought perhaps you were trying to say Martin Sheen and saying Michael instead, because... Oh, the reverse is, is what happens all the time to me, where people call me Martin all the time. I think it happens to him a lot, too. Do you think? Well, I just... <laughs> That's very kind of you. Uh, but I doubt it. <laughs> I, was just, I don't want you to feel excluded. Actually, the... Um, well, let me just give you a little okay, rundown okay, okay, on, okay. on how this is... Let me track this okay, through my okay, life. Of course. So, uh, I used to play a lot of what we call football in Britain. Soccer, we'll refer to mm-hmm. it as here. Yes. Um, and when I was about eight years old and I scored my first goal for my local team, the great thing about it was that on a Saturday, on the weekend, the local paper would come out. And if you went to the back pages, you could find the sports results for the, just the local area. And if you went down, you know, under 16s, under 15s, under 40, got down to under 10s. And I was thinking, my name is going to be in there. The first time my name will ever be in the newspaper. And it said Martin Jean. No! That was number one. Then uh, many instances after that. But the next really significant one was uh, I've been in drama school for three years. I get my first job, and it's in the West End. Huge job for an actor. First thing, opposite Vanessa Redgrave doing a play called When She Danced in the, in the West End. My first day going into the theatre, and, you know, I couldn't believe it. My name is going to be up outside the theatre. And I walk in to the, what was known, it was then called the uh, Gilgood Theatre, uh, and I walk in, I'm so excited. And just as the man outside is finishing off Martin Sheen oh, outside, no. and I went and I thought, should I tell anyone about this? Because maybe they'll get more people coming to see it if it says Martin Sheen. So I sort of kept quiet for a bit. And then eventually I said something. They were like, oh, they were horrified. You can imagine, it goes on and on and on. Yes. Fan mail for Martin Sheen when I'm playing Amadeus in Mozart. Do you really think Martin Sheen <laughs> is going to play Amadeus? <laughs> Mozart I can't, I can't in doing the cackle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so this goes on and on and on until eventually um, I, I was living here in L.A. and I was at uh, a Los Angeles Hollywood party uh, and someone said to me, oh, Martin Sheen's going to be here later on. Would you like me to introduce you to him when he gets here? And I said, oh, I'd, I'd love that because I'm a huge fan of Apocalypse Now, one of my all-time favorite movies. Sure. Um, I, th- I think Martin Sheen's an amazing actor and a, and a great man and everything. So I thought, yeah, I'd love to meet him. And uh, so at the party, and then this lady comes up and she says, Martin's here, Martin's here. Let me take you over to him. Let me take you over. I was like, okay. And as she's walking me over to him, I'm thinking, I, I've got nothing to say to him other than, oh, I think you're really great. And, you know, he's just going to be, he's not going to be interested. And when we get there and she says to him, uh, Mr. President, I'd like you to meet Mr. Prime Minister. And I thought, oh, my heart sank for a start. But at least there was some sort of conversation. Sure. And he turned around and he said, uh, he said, oh, and he was so lovely. And he said, uh, and she said, you know, this is Michael Sheen. And he said, oh, you're the reason I've been getting all these great reviews the last few years. Oh, come on. How nice is that? How lovely is that? Although I thought it was weird when they say Frost Nixon starring Charlie Sheen. Uh, was 
At least you get Martin Sheen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, true. of all the ones to get, that is that's true. not a bad one to yeah, get. Yeah. Did you talk to him for long? Yeah, we talked for like an hour or something and talked about Apocalypse Now. And I said it's my favorite movie. And I said that I'd been out there where he shot it and I'd met the man who was his driver who picked him up after that scene where he smashes the mirror and he had to be taken to the hospital and he's covered in blood and all that. That, that the guy who came in and actually picked him up and put him in the back of the car and took him to hospital was a driver on another film that, that I was out there for. And now, and when you're in that situation, do you do you go, should I, should I get Martin Sheen's like, phone number? Should we hang out? And or do I, you just let it be that moment? Well, I, I, actually, what I was thinking was, I wonder if he'd adopt me. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not have to do any paperwork. Yeah, I'm not joking. I actually was thinking that. I wonder if he would adopt me. They would, uh, we wouldn't have to change names. Well, there's no reason that you can't just say that. Yeah, I know. But then you, it, I found this with, with a few people that I've met uh, who are sort of heroes that on the one hand, I'm so excited to meet them. And all you want to do is just completely, you know, geek out about their stuff. But on the other hand, you think, I don't want to mess this up. Of course. It's like a sort of nature documentary where you see a sort of hero of yours in the wild. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to scare them because they're going to just shoot off. But you want to be around them for a little bit. So I... I, I found that with um, Terry Gilliam when I met Terry Gilliam, <gasps> who I'm a huge, huge fan of, and 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 met him at a at a thing in Toronto at the film festival, and we were just like the same company was distributing both films that we had there, and uh, and you've just got to go so gently, you've got to be so careful with it, um, because you know if you just let it all out in one go, they get they get freaked. Yeah, the defense, the shields go up. Yeah, yeah. But what I've been very fortunate with is that everyone I've met who has been a hero of mine. Sarah excluded, um, has, has, has surpassed expectations. You know, people say never meet your heroes. But I, every single hero of mine that I have met, as I, it, I've just, they've been amazing. So I've heard never fuck your heroes. Is that- <laughs> Which is why our relationship is completely chaste. Front behind. <laughs> never but fuck your heroes. Who said that? Was that Churchill? I think it was Maya Angelou. (laughs) (laughs) I find in the situations where I'm meeting people that I'm super freaked out about, that the first second that I don't have something to say, I walk away. I I find, and this is a childhood habit, that in the first second I don't know what to say, I slap them across the face. Oh, see, that's a weird way to... I actually did do that when I was a kid. I I went through a phase of getting overexcited, not knowing what to do, and slapping people. Oh, shit. Yeah. So there's always. It's a good thing that didn't continue. Yeah, there's always the possibility that it might suddenly jump back into the light. That's what happened to me when I got punched in the face at Comic Con. Someone came, was in a queue, uh, in a line, as you call it over here, to meet Sarah Silverman and have her autograph and that or a picture and something. And this one guy had a giant, incredible Hulk fist. It was whilst, you know, mm-hmm. all that was going on. It was, was actually on. the orange, the thing version. Oh, right. Oh. Okay. And when he finally got to meet her, he got completely overcome, didn't know what to do, and so punched her full in the face and knocked her out. And she came too. No, no, no. He didn't. I, that's not. I, I didn't get knocked out that right, time. Right, I've been right. punched in the face twice. <laughs> <laughs> thrice. Um, it just knocked me back. And when I got my bearing, he, I, he was just being pulled away by two giant security guards with like this look of just total remorse on his face. Why did he hit you in the I face? I think he just he he didn't excited. know what to do with himself. And he just like punched me i i mean at times where i find i don't know what to do with myself i just walk away or i say i don't know what to do with myself and that's why you have 
a podcast of your very own. <laughs> That's right. And I don't. You can't. If you punch people, you're not going to get a podcast. No. Yeah, because I met Benedict Cumberbatch at Comic-Con and was super geeked out. And he was incredibly nice. Mm-hmm. And it was going very well. And at a certain point, I my mind just like, I just hit a, I just hit a skip in the thought train. There was an empty car where there would normally be thoughts and things to say. And I was just like, nice to see you. And I walked away. But I felt like that was a good plan mm-hmm. because it, I didn't linger too long. But yeah. the second I don't have something to say, I just like, okay, bye. And then I just, I just leave. But then what if just as you're walking away, you think of something, do you go back? Nope. Mm-mm. Just keep going. Just keep going. It's the same thing as the very first time that I ever did stand up. I was in college and I went on stage. <clears throat> I was at a dorm show at UCLA. So it was just dorm kids. And the set went great. And I got off stage and the, the show ended but well, the show was about to end, but the last comic didn't show up. And so in my brain, I go, you know what? I had a good set. I'm going to go back up again because these people love me. It doesn't work that way. No. It doesn't work that way. And so then basically my first stand-up experience was marred with me getting greedy. And it taught me a fucking lesson. So I will. I never go back. And even... I even am respectful to the extent because a lot of times in those situations you'll see those people again. Mm. But I'm very respectful of like you know our 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 business has been settled and just maybe a nod, but not because I don't ever want anyone to feel like uh, like I like I need something. I, I I honestly feel like famous people. I think it's the only time that I think a a man can understand what it must feel like to be a woman on a date, which is. This sort of creepy, like, having a guy look at you like there's something they want from you. Like, there's something that you can't give them, but they need it. Like, that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's when a guy, that's when a, like, when a famous person is like, someone's just standing here and they expect something from me and they want it real bad and I don't know how to give it to them. I wonder what it's like to be a famous, attractive woman where you've got both of them. If only there well, was one you, oh. here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like the way you, I like the way you guys make sweet eyes at each other. It's real sweet. It's really fucking sweet. That's adorable. It's... We like each other just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like you like each other a lot. What would you do on your first date? Is that too personal? We went to Craig's, this restaurant. Oh yeah, on Melrose. On Melrose. Because Sarah said we might, if we go there, we might see a. A Don Rickles or a Larry King. Mm-hmm. And I thought she was talking about some sort of clone army. That If we could see a Larry King, that must mean that there's a lot of them. Yep. Just wandering around Los Angeles. We didn't, but we did on a subsequent date. No, you got to go to Nate Niles for Larry. Right? Does well, to- no, but he does eat dinner there a lot because it's, it's the guy, it's the maitre d' from Dantana's. So all right. those People that ate at Dantano's all the time, Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman, and, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, they all moved with Craig, who is the maitre d' there and was promised Dantano's by the owners, and then they reneged and sold it. And I guess what he told us was George Clooney was like, find some, find a space and I'll back you or something like that. Oh, wow. Know. I don't mean to bring George Clooney in. No, that's all right. You can always bring him in there. He's he dreamy. But you, uh, have you done Larry King's show yet? Uh, no, no Really? I, I, no, You'd I love him so. Yeah, no, I've never done that He's great You've done it, right? Yeah, but does he still have a sh- television show? He does it He does it on the internet now Oh Larry King now 
Wow. It's great. He's great. Because I figured out his... I figured out his M.O. And I don't know if he does it on purpose, but it's incredible. Because he gets you to open up by... He'll ask you something really innocuous and then hit you with something really serious. And he jumps... Before you finish answering the question fully, so you never have time to throw your shield. Well, so he up. goes like, uh, "Nice weather today." Yes, it is. Why is your mother a whore? Seriously, that kind of thing. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. That's exactly how he does it. Or he'll go, uh, he'll go. Uh, so, uh, what's your favorite Star Wars character? Well, I mean, you know, I like this one droid called R five D four. I hear you had a drinking problem. And you're like, yes, I started drinking when I was twenty. And, you know, and then you all of a sudden you're just spitting all this stuff out. And then you'll get an innocuous question again. You know, tell me about bowling because my dad's a professional bowler. Well, no, no, I understand uh, your parents lost a child when you were like, oh my god, like it just he he constantly. Is your dad really a professional? Bowler? He was a professional bowler. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We have something in common in that our fathers have both done unusual conversation opening jobs. What is yours? My father was a Jack Nicholson lookalike. <laughs> what? Yeah. Stop the clock. Wait a minute. My dad. That was, was a his professional job. Jack Nicholson lookalike. <gasps> I, would, I would probably say the world's number one Jack Nicholson lookalike for many a year. Oh, my God. I would say from the beginning of the Tim Burton Batman reign. Yeah. So the first time Jack Nicholson played the Joker, it began then. And he still does it very occasionally now. Pretty but late. But, the, yeah, it's, yeah, it was quite late in, in his life. Yeah. So he didn't, even, he didn't even get Cuckoo's Nest Nicholson no. or any of that stuff. Although I did, because when he, he didn't know who Jack Nicholson was to begin with, uh, he had people coming up to him and saying, you really look like Jack Nicholson. And he used to say... What, the golfer? And he thought it was Jack, Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sarah just held up a picture, and he yeah. fucking looks like... That's, that's an early picture of him. So when, so when this film came out, there was a competition in the newspaper in Britain saying, do you look like the Joker? Send us a photograph. So my dad said, Michael, will you, uh, will you make me look like the Joker from Batman? Because <laughs> uh, he's Welsh. And uh, so I had to do, like, I had to make him up, and I made him look like Jack Nicholson from Cuckoo's Nest, and I did a whole photo shoot with him. Is there, is there the picture on there of... Him from. <laughs> well, We're just bringing up photographs here on the uh, <laughs> on the audio podcast. In, uh, um, but yeah, so I did all these p- pictures for him, and um, uh, he uh, and then he got an agent, and then he started what? working all over the world. He's been everywhere. He's done everything. He even got asked once to go to the premiere of uh, a Jack Nicholson film in Germany, and when he turned up there, they said, "Oh, we actually wanted." the real Jack Nicholson to come, but he pulled out. So you need to be... We've told everyone Jack Nicholson's coming in. So he just so going to be it. Jack Nicholson. So it was like the movie Dave, but where Dave is Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Oh. And so my dad got put in like the most amazing suite of rooms at this hotel that Jack Nicholson would have had. And, uh, but then he ended up having to go and do radio interviews. Oh, a lookalike I mean, doing radio point. interviews. Does he do the voice too? He has a go. <laughs> God bless him. What does a Welsh Jack Nicholson impersonation mm, sound like? It's not, it's not pleasant. <laughs> it's really not. He, he sort of, he gives it, what I've always said is that what he lacks in specificity, Amazing. he makes up for in commitment. Okay. So he goes for it. He gives you your money's worth. It, it may not sound like Jack Nicholson, but you get a performance. Just do me a favor and say, where does he get those wonderful toys as a Welsh Jack Nicholson? All right. All right. I'm going to have to do this in stages. So first of all, I'll have to speak like my dad. Okay. And my dad then, when he does his posh voice. So when my dad is on the train going from Wales to London, the closer to London he gets, I know where he is on the train if I call him (laughs) because the posher his voice gets, the closer he is to London. So you'll say, if you call him up, I'll say, hello, dad. And you'll go, 
Hello, my Dakshinka. <laughs> so he talks like that. He's Welsh, but he puts on a rather posh voice. And he is very, very adamant about things, Michael. <laughs> so if he was to speak like Jock, he would probably do his American accent. Where does he get all those wonderful toys? <laughs> Probably something along those lines. What, what about that had when so the... many layers? That had so, so many, many layers. Amazing layers. <laughs> yeah. They have on the Fourth of July. They have like um, USA parties, right? What's it called? Yeah, like a, an America party. And they go like he goes as like a cowboy, and his mom goes as a baseball player. Yeah. Oh, that's great! That actually does represent the major swaths of this country. <laughs> it actually. does. But when my mom and dad used to come and visit me in LA, when my dad was doing all the Jack Nicholson stuff, he loved it because he would get an LA Lakers hat and he put that on, and he put his dark glasses on, and he'd say, "No, no, I'm not trying to get people to think I'm Jack. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm. It's, it's sunny, Michael." And so, and then every five minutes, people would come out and want pictures, and my, and my mum would have to take the picture, and she just had a guts full of it. She couldn't, she hated it. We don't. Oh, sorry. What about when <laughs> anger management came to London? Oh yes, so the, yeah, the pr- premiere of anger management, and um, Jack Nicholson was coming over for the premiere, Leicester Square, red carpet, and a, a company got in touch with my dad and said, "We've had this great idea. What we want to do is we want when Jack Nicholson is walking down the red carpet, we'll have you in all your Jack stuff hidden in the crowd next to the red carpet, and just as he's walking up the red carpet, we're gonna we'll get you on there, and then you meet him, and Jack meets Jack on the red carpet. Well, I don't and see this how is going to be could go bad. Yeah, and so my dad told me about this, and he said, I, "I'm not sure, Michael. I really." I really don't know what to do here. And I said, well, you know, it's up to you, Dad. You have a think about it. And he said, yes, yes, I'll have a think about it. And uh, and then a few days later, I called him up and I said, did you decide what you're going to do? And he said, yes, I'm not going to do it, Michael. It's Jack's night. (laughs) (laughs) Very giving. Very. I said, I I think that's very generous of you, Dad. (laughs) Very nice of you. May not have gone as no, according. That would have gone very badly. I think. Usually, when a company like that calls and says, "We have a great idea," it's not. You yeah. just hang up the phone because yeah. it's usually not going to be. Oh, that's so. Sweet. No, and I also something something. I don't think I've I've told you this story, but the, something happened, and I now can't remember which way around it was. Either my dad got into a situation whilst he was being Jack. No, no, I know exactly what it was. So, um, do you remember when Jack Nicholson got? There was a whole thing about him attacking someone with a baseball bat on the freeway. Do you remember about this? Oh, uh, no. There was, a, there was a whole thing about it. And it was sort of tied into the anger management thing because it, it was like, oh, Jack really does have an anger issue. And there was a whole thing about him having threatened someone or something. Anyway, it was on the news. And they, I remember watching this and seeing, as they were talking about it on the news, they started putting photographs up in the background, you know, relevant photographs. And one of them was about an incident at a premiere where Jack had apparently got into a tussle with someone in the crowd. And I was like, that's my dad. <laughs> that's my dad. And it wasn't Jack. It was my dad. Did you tell your dad that he was Yeah, I told him that, yeah. yeah. How did he discover... I mean, what was his career before this? 
he was uh, a personnel manager, which okay. is like HR mm-hmm. manager, I guess. So he, he worked in sort of middle management like that, yeah. But he was always a sort of frustrated performer. He was really, he, uh, he, but had, uh, God bless him, no talent uh, in that department, but a lot of commitment. So he really loved the idea of being an actor, and, but he, he just couldn't really do it very well. So he was really, really, you know, in the, it was the sweet spot for him to be able to be, have the life of a performer without really having to do anything other than give it 110%, which yeah. is what he does. So it worked out great for him. Completely changed his life. And then I would imagine wherever he went, people would just give him nothing but love and attention. Oh, yeah. Go to a restaurant anywhere and you'll have people coming up and going, uh, oh, uh, uh, like my dad wouldn't have finished the food. He said that you get such big portions in America and he was in a restaurant in America and, they, uh, and the waiters came up to him and he'd eaten like half of it and they quickly like got rid of the food and then went, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nicholson is a member of the Clean Plate Club. Oh. And then, you know, he'd have to be, so he loved, but he loves all that. He absolutely loves it. But everywhere he goes, he would get that kind of attention. Have you ever met Jack Nicholson? I have met him, yes. I've met him twice, very briefly. Once when I was at drama school and uh, to make some you know, money, I had a job as a, a theatre usher. And uh, one day I was, I was at the, before the play started and I was sorting my programmes out. And from behind me, I just heard a voice going, can I get a programme, please? <laughs> and I turned around and there he is. It's like, oh my God, you look like my dad. Uh, and then the next, and then I met him at a party like a few years ago, and just to say hello, you know, that was it. And I, I would love to say, in fact, once I was at a Lakers game and I sat behind Jack mm. in the in the crowd, and I took a picture of the back of his head, and I and I sent it to my dad, and I went, look who I'm behind, and uh, my dad wrote back and said, uh, what did he say? He said. Not like me, though. I'm even better than the real thing. <laughs> There's no... Who is Jack Nicholson now? Is that is that even possible anymore? How do you mean? In the sense that there's this era of... He was sort of this wave of, like, m- m- fucking mega movies. Mm. Like, the, the kind of, like, Bob Evans, mm. you know. Yeah. Where, where the, there was that era where movie stars were seemingly untouchable. Mm. And then just, you know... Well, and also, I, I, you know, things have changed so much. Like, I always use this as an example, but there was a time when Richard Dreyfus was the lead actor in big blockbuster movies. Oh, yeah. Now, Richard Dreyfus is a phenomenal actor, but no one would cast someone like Richard Dreyfus now as, do you know what I mean? As, like, right. lead of Close Encounters, lead of George. Like, who, who's going to cast this brilliant, quirky Odd-looking guy, not not conventionally handsome. Say it, Jew. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid using that word. Uh, but you know, like that was amazing. That, and I guess Jack Nicholson, in a way, is a product of that. He's not conventionally like a leading man, but he came through that period of time. And we all think of him now as being wow, he's the amazing, charismatic, you know, sexy guy. But. Uh, if he was, if young Jack Nicholson was out now, I wonder if he would, if his career would go the same way. I don't know because there's, yeah, I don't know. Is there, who is, is there, is there anyone that's sort of quirky and offbeat that's uh, considered a leading man now? I can't think of anyone. Because there he, are plenty of leading men dogs. It's the women <laughs> that get the shaft. I guess there are a lot of yeah. There was a time where Liza Minnelli was the leading actress in a romantic comedy. Arthur. Hmm. That's right. <laughs> it's one of the greatest movies of all time. When they remade it, they asked Greta Gerwig to lose weight. Mm-hmm. You take a back seat again. Here nope, that's fine. That was a valid point. Yeah, no, yeah, it's absolutely a valid point. And it, I mean, she was 
well, she was she was doing Arthur <clears throat> sort of around the same time as Dreyfus was doing. You know, it was a similar. It wasn't just about women and men, but women are always going to get the the worst end of it. But but across the board, it was different then. I yeah. think you know. Yeah. Don't you think? Yes, darling. Does it, <laughs> do you do you feel like you have just the right amount of notoriety? Like you wouldn't. You kind of don't want to be any more famous. Because if you are, then it starts to get in the way. And you probably... Yeah. I would imagine in England, is it, do, you, do you get paparazzi shit a lot? I mean, a bit, but I mean, not that much. <laughs> it's not enough to, to make it, you know. Sarah's eyes get really wide and she's nodding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a bit of that. But I, 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 if I really think about it, I feel like, you know, it's sort of... Everything's sort of at the right level for me, it feels like. On a good day, I'm able to appreciate that. On a bad day, I'm like, oh, why am I not... You know, you can always feel like that. But on a good day, I feel like, you know what? I have... I can get... Usually get a table at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, As long as I get someone else to drop my name, because I can't do it myself. (laughs) Uh, I can, you know, I get now and again, just just when you sort of need it, someone comes up and goes, I really like you. I really like your work or I really like you in that. And it's just enough. It's not enough to be intrusive or to be like, you can't do anything. And, um, but any more than that, and yeah, it would get in the way. And I feel like I have enough anonymity in a way to be able to get away with playing lots of very different parts. Mm-hmm. I think there are some people that, you, you know, it's just hard to accept as, as, as certain parts because you sort of know too much about them and they're too familiar. So I feel like I've got, you know, it's a pretty good level for me. That's why in England you should always travel with your dad nearby. So if you get paparazzi, you're like, <laughs> look, Jack Nicholson. And then you run well, the other way. You joke. I went, to, I did a film called Bright Young Things many years ago. Mm-hmm. And we were in this sort of limo that had been hired for the night. Me, my mum, my dad, my publicist, and, you know, my agent or something. And we turn up at Leicester Square on the red carpet. And there's crowds and all going crazy. And my publicist says, uh, when we pull up, when we get up to the red carpet, my publicist said, let your dad get out first. <laughs> And then give it a few minutes. And I was like, what do you mean? And then my dad got out and all the cameramen are like, Jack, Jack, Jack. And they went crazy. And I, I realized, ah, yes, I need to leave it five minutes now before I get out of the car. Oh, of course. Yeah, because yeah. you won't. Because I would. You're yeah, not going to. No gonna, one would pay any attention. No, no, no. Yeah. That was, uh, that, happened, that happened at the Emmys because I, I was doing the red carpet next to Kerry Washington and everyone to, which, by the way, totally fine. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't mind at all. She's gorgeous. And and super funny too. She was really cool. Hmm. But yeah, you, you sort of like it is kind of funny that that there are these sort of weird like. No, you gotta understand how this system works. It's a yeah. very weird animal, and it's weird that that's a part of what we do too. Now, I don't mean we like you and I are in this. I mean like I'm down here and you're up here, Not and that's fine. How dare you? No, it's true. Um, I, I'm I'm but a mere TV host and uh, and a decent comedian at best. But you but but I'm like but to actually there's something that's so entrancing about. Uh, acting but do you in the sense that television now is just as engaging to people do you remember when there was like this huge gap between like oh well, you don't do oh, television yeah. when i when i first got to la like i said about 12 13 years ago or something if the idea of you know trying to pursue a film career then it was the death knell if you were to go into tv that was the attitude cable even yeah god i mean just ridiculous showtime no is on showtime oh it's over oh, yeah there's no way anyone will ever consider you to be in movies and that kind of stuff and i mean that has completely reversed now i think if any you know it's completely changed in the last 10 years it is extraordinary so sort of it must be nice as i feel like as a british actor you can uh 
you can do an awesome TV series, and then whenever you feel like it, you can just go back to England and do like a period movie. <laughs> so I mean, that is exactly what I did last year. I did the season of Masters of Sex, and then I went back to Britain and did a period movie. That is exactly what I did. <laughs> There's no shortage of those. No, they there's plenty of them out there. To make the Masters of I, this, I, please forgive me. I, I I haven't seen a lot of the show yet, and I have a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. It's weird for me to see people I know having sex on, in a movie. I had a friend who guest starred on the show called Hung, which I thought was a great show. Uh, and she got fucked really hard in the show. And I was like, oh, I can't. I felt like I was. Mm. I felt like I had something. I felt weird. I felt one really the, weird about one it. One of the first things that Sarah Silverman's father said to me when I met him recently mm-hmm. was, nice talkers. <laughs> He's learned a lot of new words. I did. You should hear him say duty. He's like, duty. It's like a baby learning a new word. Do you just like to get him to say swears? Well, um, duty isn't really a swear, Chris, but... Well, in the eyes of the Lord, it is. <laughs> like, had you ever heard duty before? I've never heard the word duty. And now, whenever I hear someone in America or anywhere saying the word duty... Right. I snigger like a four-year-old. That's right. <laughs> we were at someone's wedding the that other day. That was snigger. <laughs> we were at someone's wedding the other day. The S word. And, uh, and whilst they were doing their vows, they swore to something to do with duty. Mm-hmm. And me and Sarah turned to each other and just chuckled like <laughs> a like, pair of malevolent leprechauns. Duty. So infantile. But that's important. It's important to still... The couple that laugh at duty together, stay together. Mm-hmm. And they said it would never last, didn't they? So. And he th- <laughs> oh, no, he I said it would never last. <laughs> he came up with a great joke when he spent a week with my family. Oh, that's right. Uh, so yeah, we'd had a week, and Sarah's entire family were there in New Hampshire. Her sister, who is a rabbi in Jerusalem. You cannot get any more Jewish than that. <laughs> no. She is a rabbi in Jerusalem. And she came over with her husband and her children, and all, all of Sarah's sisters were there, and her mother and her father and her stepmother and everyone for an entire week. And uh, I, I think at one point I turned to Sarah and said, uh, uh, I've, I've spent the entire week on Jewy duty. <laughs> this is now my favorite pastime coming up with jokes around this we went to the um 92nd y street theater in new york the other mm-hmm. day because i'm going to do something there in in october and we were sort of checking out the building and it is amazing and it's you know just for jewish people mainly it's a it's jewish not just institution just for jewish it's people it's, the jews are love culture okay but and it's, it's, art. No, it's, it's very like much a to get jewish into your secret cabal building. it's a jewish why and they okay, have so like incredible writers and performers yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought what i'm jewish... saying is that it's a it's a jewish building i thought the jewish why was why <laughs> What is a Jewish building? It stands for yeah. <laughs> but we're sort of walking around. And it's amazing. There's like these amazing rooms, and it's beautifully done. It's quite opulent, gorgeous place. And there's this beautiful uh, uh, recreational room with lots of old Jewish ladies in there. Sarah said it smells like a million nanas. Yeah, she loved, it smells she loved the so smell good of that. in there. And so we're walking around. And there's a swimming pool there, and there's a gym, and there's theaters, and it's it's amazing. And I said, it's, it's Xanadu, is what it is. That was so much set up for 
Well, I mean, a terrible pun. Now, by the way, Xanadu starring Olivia Jute and John was uh, really... Remember I told you you would love Michael because he made, like, a terrible pun when we were on the road, and I was like, oh, my God. Sarah, Sarah really hates three things that I love. One is puns and wordplay. She mm-hmm. hates that. Well, she she's wrong about that. Yeah, she's totally wrong. I didn't hate it. I just, I feel a certain way about it. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Being annoying. This is my own bits against me. <laughs> so she, she hates wordplay and puns. She hates magic. Yeah. And let me, let me just be clear about this. Not magic as in sort of, nat- not magic with a CK at the end. Right. She hates Magic done by magicians who are doing tricks. I don't tricks. like magicians. They're not magic. I love magic. I no, swoon for magic. Your dislike for it is based entirely on a false premise. They are not trying to convince you that they are magic. <laughs> right. They're Instead, not trying to convince you. Right. It's an illusion. So the difference is they spent some time in their basement learning a trick when I was busy, and that's the difference between us. Can I tell you something? You were making up you? funny stories. That's the thing, is that comics basically do the same exact yes. thing. Yes, no. that's why you don't like it. <laughs> you, there's a turn where, you, where, you, the, where the people don't see the misdirect, and it's like, ba-da! Right, well, that's why I didn't like... Um, I didn't want Michael to keep coming to see me do stand-up because I was like, I don't want you to see the strings. Oh, but did. that's what I find fascinating. What I love about going to see Sarah do stand-up over and over again is that just seeing the tiny difference because she's building up her act again now after doing the special and just seeing like how that works and how you you change something slightly different or put a different button on something or something adds or you find something new and I love it I find it absolutely fascinating you're a process nerd you like process I am an absolute process nerd but she also doesn't like magic because uh, magicians have ponytails which is fair (laughs) enough I'm with that but the third thing she doesn't like is farce Oh, you don't. Hates farce. What do you, what's the thing you say? Oh, look, I... I don't just... know. I mean, I just, I don't like, like, uh, oh, look, uh, you're laughing because uh, this, this door opened and then this door shut and then uh, you just missed him. And then it's all like, isn't it incredible timing? And it's, no, I don't like it. I don't like farce. I don't like... Um, what's, I don't like magicians, I don't like farce, and I don't like sensations. <laughs> Any sensations? I don't like, like, I don't like to be cold or wet. Oh, man, I, I don't know you well enough to make the joke. She will, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when she is eventually found dead in a desert, <laughs> we'll know why. Then she will find true happiness. Yeah. I just don't like sensations or noises or colors. So that, well, that is a lot of things in the what? entertainment spectrum. I like that you said you don't know me well enough. Like, we've known each other for many years. But Not you, Chris... Michael. Oh. <laughs> no, I, I know you enough to make the joke, but I know Michael <laughs> enough to... And I think we'll keep it that <laughs> That was it? <laughs> How do you like being around? Do you... Do you, do you, do you uh, now that you have basically probably have a bunch of new comedian friends... Mm. Uh, well, Sarah says that I am only funny... Just as I'm waking up. Okay. That's the only time I'm ever funny. Apparently, apparently I'm killing for the first five minutes of consciousness in the morning. And the rest of the time, I'm a terrible comedic failure. I wonder if... Sometimes he's funny, other times. Oh, really? Oh, thank you so much. It's because... Uh, maybe it's because in the first five minutes, you're just not aware yet. 
I think that's what it is. I can't even take credit for being funny in the first five minutes because I'm not aware of what I'm saying. I'm accidentally funny for five minutes of every day. That's essentially what she's saying. Now, because, because you're a fantastic actor, do you, be, do you think that you could do stand-up by approaching it as a role? Like, I'm going to get into the head of a comedian and to be a comedian. No, I don't think so. No. I mean, I am, like I said, I am a sort of process nerd. So I, I am fascinated by the idea of, like, when I've done, I haven't done it often, but I've done a few plays that are just out-and-out comedies where if, you, if people aren't laughing, there's nothing else to fall back on. You know, a lot of actors will kind of, when they're doing plays or films that have comedy in it but it's not a comedy you kind of often think oh well the audience aren't laughing it's fine because you know it's actually about the story and all that you know you can kind of kid yourself that it's okay when it's an out and out comedy that if if you're not making people laugh it's just not working and i've done that once or twice and i did find it really fascinating the sort of things you have to do and i don't know if this is true of stand-up but like i'd have to trick myself into forgetting that what i was about to say is a funny line Oh yeah, because if I if I was too aware that it was funny, the audience just didn't laugh. Yeah, it just got, kind of got messed up. So I found that kind of thing really fascinating. And I, I, I maybe I'd be too over analytical. There was a very famous comedian, comedy actor in Britain called Tony Hancock, and he sort of famously couldn't stop taking apart why he was funny and why, and he killed himself. <laughs> oh God, he, he was like you know it was a he was a sort of tragic figure, and and people I, in Britain tend to use him as an example of, you know, you just, you can't think about it too much. You can't analyze it too much. You just got to do it and you just got to go with it. And I can't help but As an actor, I, I analyze everything. I, I, I deconstruct everything. If you put, if you put a couple comics in a room long enough, they'll start tearing it down. They'll start telling you why you're not funny. <laughs> <laughs> but passive aggressively. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, cause a lot of them are not confrontational. What that's one of the things that I've found that with, with Sarah's friends, who are comics? There, there's a I, maybe they're different when they're not with Sarah or something. But I've found that they're very generous people. Whereas a lot of other comics that I've come across in my life, I wouldn't necessarily describe as being generous people, or at least that the, the material. Everyone's trying to out funny each other and all that kind of stuff. And people are very people are telling gags when uh, you know in Sarah's sort of social group. But there's a kind of there's a different vibe to it. I, I really I like 100% that. Really agree. supportive. There's something about this stratum of comics. The L.A. comics, or at least the it was sort of like the Largo, the sort of, mm. for lack of a better term, the alternative scene. Uh, everyone's real nice mm. and and supportive, and then you do dogpile tags on jokes, but it doesn't feel like mm. it doesn't feel like you're trying to hip check someone no, out it of the way. Feel, it doesn't feel competitive. No, uh, maybe it is competitive and it's just covered up, but it doesn't feel competitive. It feels like everyone enjoys it. Everyone enjoys each other being it's, funny in that way, and that's. It's very additive. refreshing. It's additive without feeling like um, I I have to destroy everyone mm. else in the process to get my thing. Yeah. Uh, or that you can't have a conversation. Like I remember at drama school, there was a phase where it beca- everyone found it really funny to if almost if anyone said anything that was vaguely, you know, boring or or vaguely um, pointless. Then someone would go. There was a whole thing about the shawl of shame, that, and 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 so first of all, it started with someone going put on the shawl of shame. Then it was just put it on, and then <laughs> and then it was eventually not even. You just did the gesture, <laughs> and so and everyone became frightened of speaking. It got to the point where no one spoke. Oh, you wow. just waited for someone else to say something because you you didn't want to get the shawl of shame thing happening to you. And that, that I think there's a danger of that where sometimes where everyone is so focused on trying to be funny that you can't have a conversation. But uh, that's not true, is what I'm saying, I suppose, of, of the people that I've 
met through through Sarah. It's funny that that would be in a community of actors where being able to be vulnerable is so crucial, you know, and then to just be yeah. shamed out of like. Hmm. I guess I'll just shut up. Look how I just made it. You made the shawl of shame. No, you're supposed to. You have to put it on. Put it on. Put it on. Put the put shawl on. of shame on. How. uh how do you start to get a sense as an actor if you're hitting your mark in terms of emotionally where you're supposed to be? I mean, you you might do stuff when you first start out. You go, oh, I'm being this way emotionally in this scene. And then you might watch or someone else might go, yeah, it's, I know what you think you're doing, but it's yeah. you're not doing that. So how do you... Well, what Sarah just mentioned about vulnerability, that's... I, you know, one of the one of the kind of paradoxes of acting, I suppose, or maybe even of performing, but certainly of acting, is that uh, uh, you to do really good work. I think you have to go be quite vulnerable in what you're doing, and yet everything about us as human beings tends to try and avoid being vulnerable. That's what we spend most of our life doing. We have, um, I mean, I talk about this a lot because of the character I play in the TV show because he's sort of an extreme version of it. But there's the version of ourselves that we think we are internally, the sort of sense of ourselves that we have, then there's what, who we're trying to fool everyone into thinking that we are, and then there's what actually comes across. So there's sort of three different versions of ourselves. And the version of ourselves that we, that we keep, you know, that we're, we experience on the inside, if that's a long way away from what we're trying to get everyone else to think we are, then you've got the makings of um, an awful life. And fantastic drama, right? Um, and uh, and then there's how you betray yourself all the time. So you think that you're covering up this inner version that you're not happy about and that you don't want anyone to know about, and yet you're always sort of betraying it. You're always letting it through, and you're not aware of that. And that it's the interplay of those three things that I find fascinating as a, as an actor to, to explore with a character. But the problem is, of course, that you you in in order to perform on a stage or in front of a camera you ha it's a, it it's vulnerable making that is just it is vulnerable in itself um and there's always a part of you as an actor that is trying to defend yourself against vulnerability all the time and sometimes having ideas is a way of defending against being vulnerable the ideas become sort of armor for you and protect you from being vulnerable then other times there's like being what people would consider being what they call tricksy acting where you kind of rely on certain things that you know people that you know people like and, they, yeah. and that work for you and that becomes armor and ultimately you know to be in the kind of sweet spot of acting to do the good stuff i always feel like it's just when you're vulnerable, when you just let all that go. You know, sometimes I, I used to feel it was one of the challenges with the character that I play in Master of Sex that to begin with, he, you know, there's not a lot going on on the surface. And, my, and that brought up all my insecurities that I'm not very interesting unless I'm doing stuff. Yes. And I'm not interesting. The audience is not going to be interested in me if I'm, unless I'm doing stuff. And it was a real challenge for me to not do too much or not do too much on the surface, to have lots going on underneath but not show it so much. And that brought up all kinds of insecurities for me. And that, again, that's stopping yourself from being vulnerable, just going, I'm here, there's stuff going on, uh, and I'm not going to cover it up. Sometimes pausing too long on stage certainly is a, is a way of stopping yourself from being vulnerable. It, it protects you. Like somehow that thing of going, I'm not going to speak until I'm ready. I'm not going to speak until it, I'm feeling it. And that, again, becomes a way of just stopping yourself from being vulnerable. David Mamet talks about the idea of um, just don't pause, just say it. Just say it and trust that unconsciously you will be in exactly the right place to deliver the line before you know you are. So just let it go. And I, when, I, when I worked with Woody Allen, funnily enough, it reminded me of that David Mamet stuff because Woody Allen was sort of saying, sort of kind of going, don't have ideas. 
Like, you know, the, the, the sort of stories about Woody Allen only giving you the, the pages in the script that you're in is true. I didn't know what else, what happened in the rest of the film. So you go in, as an actor, you think, well, I have, to, I have to know what the story is that I'm in. Otherwise, how can I possibly put, you know, if I don't know the context of how this character works. But you, I, uh, you don't. I didn't. And, uh, and, and if you sort of start playing subtext, he goes, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. Don't have ideas. Just, just play the lines. Just play the surface. And I thought, that's interesting, because it reminded me of Mama and going... It's a very unmodern way of looking at it. People used to say that Shakespeare did the same thing, that Shakespeare would only give the actors their lines and their cue lines from the other actors. You never got the whole play. So all you would know is, oh, my cue is whatever the line is. You'd hear it, and then you go, oh, no, I say my line. So you did, it was a similar kind of thing. It's very unmodern, the idea that Shakespeare doesn't write subtext, that, the, that you just play the surface, the subtext. Everything is in the imagery and the poetry and the, and the, and the words themselves. You don't play subtext. And uh, so it was kind of liberating to work with Woody in that way because he's asking you to improvise and yet you don't even know what the story of the film is that you're improvising in. That's interesting because it basically... You as the performer usually get to sort of be the puppet master of the character, mm. but he all the, he kind of takes. It sounds like he takes that away, and he's like, "No, no, Absolutely, no, absolutely, no. yeah. I know what's going on. You don't. It's even know writer, what's going on. yeah. It's the writer as the revealer of stories. So the choices the writer makes are what dictate what the audience knows at any given time, rather than the actor kind of infusing a scene with something that gives the audience a sense of something that might be happening. There's none of that. He doesn't let you do that. You just play the surface of everything, and then that kind of. When it works, it's kind of brilliant. And, and, it, and, it, and, and it's very liberating as an actor to do that, where you don't have to worry about who my character is or, or even what my motivation is particularly. You just play the surface of the lines. And that somehow opens up a kind of vulnerability in you. That's what's sort of inter- That was the point I was sort of making, I suppose. I know. Uh, you, you must know Steve Agee, right? Yeah. You know Steve. Steve takes amazing fucking pictures and... The way that I see him photograph is he just holds a camera out and snaps. He doesn't even he, a lot of times he doesn't even look what mm. he's shooting, and it just somehow it just he just accidentally captures. I think even better than if he held the camera and lined it up and made mm. everything you know perfect. There's just something really organic and authentic about the way that mm. he just click 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 click. Well, it's about and I don't know if this is true with Stephen taking photographs, but I I do I have found that. Generally speaking, there are two... This is very big generalization, but there's generally speaking two kinds of actors. There's, there are the actors who do loads of work, loads of research, you know, just spend all their time analyzing and putting all the work in. And then there are the actors who don't put any work into it, totally spontaneous, just turn up, you know, go for it. And there's a kind of dangerous unpredictability to what they do, but don't put much work into it. And... And I found that the actors who, who put lo- do loads of research work can often, when they come to the actual moment of performing, are kind of bound by that. It becomes very hard to break out of that and to be in the moment and just go with what's going on. Sure. And the actors who put no work into it and just fly by the seat of their pants are very interesting, you know, in the moment. And there's all kinds of interesting things going on. But it just, uh, you know, it's, it's very self-involved. It's not serving the story. They're not really... It doesn't really work. There's no depth to it. You know what I mean? And right. so... Finding a balance of the two is what's really hard, to be able to put lots of work into it, and then when it comes to the moment of actually performing, throw in that away. Forget it. Get rid of it. And then trust that the work you've done will inform what you do. So you can be in the moment and forget anything. You're not, you know, don't worry about who the character is and what your motivation is and all that kind of stuff. Just be in the moment with the person that you're working with and trust that all that work you've done will inform your choices. And and then you have a kind of combination of the two. Then you have something really interesting. I think. Yeah, it sounds like it. it basically just um, 
it really distills down to two basic words, which is uh, is be and don't do, right? Because because if you can just let everything go and just be, mm. as opposed to it's very interesting what you said, but about, not having done any work, right, 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 and being right. right is just being you, right? You have to trust that you can be, but you will be someone different to who. You are. If you've done all the work, you can't be someone different. If you haven't done any of the work, right? You know what I mean, you can turn up and be in the moment, but it's not really helping anything. No, but that idea of uh, oh, I feel like I'm not doing anything. I need to be doing something mm. in this. Right? I'm not doing anything because you sometimes you just not you're not as comfortable with yourself. You're not as comfortable, yeah. or, or you 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 don't trust you don't trust yourself enough. Like oh, if I just I'm interesting just because I'm me and I'm a yeah. unique collection of experiences and molecules. It was like when I did, I did Frost Nixon the play for about a year and a half before I came to do the film of it. And by that point, I'd done it, you know, we'd done Frost Nixon in a tiny little theatre, the Donmar Theatre in London, which is where it began for about three months. Then we went into the West End Theatre, which was big theatre. Um, then we came over to Broadway, big theatre. And then finally we, we did the movie of it. And by that point, after that long, uh, getting in front of a camera, having spent a year and a half or whatever just being this character, and having gone from a tiny theatre to a big theatre, where in the big theatre, suddenly the stuff I was doing in the tiny theatre, the audience wasn't getting. So you couldn't just be. You have to be and project what you're right. being out and you can't play do that broad on film. strokes. Yeah. But then you come back to film at the end of it, and all that stuff that has informed the performance up to that point, then you have to go, right, now I can't, I don't push this now, now I just let it be there and let the camera find it so rather than going out to the audience which you which i felt like i had to do in the theater i then had to totally reverse it and go now i let the camera come to me and discover what's going on rather than me having to somehow work out what's going on and then throw it out there for the audience yeah because i, I wonder if um do do are, do, are there acting schools that take that into consideration when people are studying? It's like, this is acting for film. This is how you do the same thing 20 times because you have to do multiple takes. Yeah. And you forgot what you did oh, two weeks ago when you shot the other thing. It almost seems like... I don't know if there is now. There wasn't when I was doing it. When I was at drama school, the acting for camera class was like... We did two classes and it was just, you know, someone had a a broken <laughs> video camera or something like there was no nothing I, I i didn't i didn't learn really about all that stuff until i did a very small film a small independent film in britain called heartlands and and i was in every shot of it basically and just spending a month or and a half or two months in front of a camera for that long all the time every day i slowly got relaxed I slowly got used to being in front of a camera and I started to learn a bit more about it. And I, I think to a large extent, it's very hard to teach that kind of stuff. You just have to learn as you go along um, and you pick up things as you go along. And, and, and I started to realize, oh, the, the diff- I, for me, the difference between film acting and, and stage acting maybe is that on stage, you sort of have to take responsibility for the story. You have to take responsibility for the whole thing because the audience are looking at a box, essentially, and you tell them where to look and what to listen to and what the focus should be at any one moment. And that requires you to be kind of unselfish at times and not just, you can't just stand there acting away and, you know, and you have to take responsibility for it. You're all working as a team. On film, you don't have to take responsibility for all of it. In fact, it, it's, it's better if you don't because it's all going to go into an editing suite and someone else is going to make the choices of who, what does the audience see at any given point. So your, your job as an actor on film, it seems to me, is to just fill every moment with life for it to be 
happening real there in the moment. Because I found when I first started acting on film, and I can still have a tendency towards this, is I'm, I try and make the scene work mm-hmm. and, the, and the rhythm of the scene. And, you know, and, and it's like, that's not, I, I'm not in charge of that. I'm right. not, they, someone else is going to dictate what the rhythm of this scene is and, and who, what, what the camera's on at any given moment. You just have to let go of that, not take responsibility of that, which is why I think really selfish, self-obsessed people can be really successful actors <laughs> on Cause, film. Because they're just not, they're not thinking about anyone else. Yeah, but yeah. Because that, that kind of, those qualities that make people kind of self-obsessed and, and selfish can actually work for you on film. It is interesting. Or, I mean, against you on, on stage sometimes. I, I always say that this business not only attracts a certain personality type, but it also it also fosters some of those negative traits at the same time. Like, it attracts insecure people, and it makes people more insecure at the same time. Yeah, it can do. But I think if you, you know, you can feel that pressure on you a lot of times. I mean, just something like, you know, you get to work, and from the time you're at work, even if you want to go to the bathroom, someone has to go with you. Right. It does infantilize you. you know? <laughs> and, and the weird thing, though, over here is that in Britain, uh, maybe it's changed in Britain now, I haven't been there for so long, but um, you know, if you're doing a TV show or something, you, you, someone drives you. You have a car sent to take you to the set and all that kind of stuff. And here, they just say, you have to drive yourself. So, but what's weird to me is that given that they don't trust you to even go to the bathroom on your own once you're at work... Mm-hmm perfectly fine about you driving at 4.30 in the morning on the freeway when you're barely awake right. and finding your way to work every day. It seems like an odd thing to me. Well, they're just worried about you because you're Martin Sheen and you're very old. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. That is exactly right. Um, do you, I, I, years and years ago, I went to this... Uh, I was visiting... Um, I, I was over in England. Oh, Zach Galifianakis was doing this submarine movie in like 2001. Oh, yeah, where he was the only live-action... We were all excited because it was like, Zach is starring in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie or something. Was that it? I don't know if it was a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. I think it, it was, was during the old Largo times. Yeah. And yeah. it was this movie called Below. And he was... It, oh, okay. Right. And and so he was shooting this movie over there and I, and I happened to be over there. So we went out one night and we went to this incredible, like... Not, I'm not going to say seedy, but it was a really interesting underbelly of British performer culture, like the Groucho Club, oh, yeah. like all these really where you just go in and it's a goddamn like laugh Olympics of famous British people where you're like, that person's talking to that person and that's Rufus Sewell and that guy over there, you know, like all these crazy famous people mm. that are that just all hang out together in this stratum of society were you are you were you, were you ever privy to i've i've gone to such places um I, yeah it it can be weird although i i mean the the extreme version of that is here though in la when i i'd only been here for a couple of years or something i went to i mean the first time i ever went to the night before party for the oscars oh, you know? yes. and uh and you turn up at this thing, and every single person there is the most famous person in the world. <laughs> and you see really famous people going, oh, my God, look who's over there. Look who's over there. Tom Hanks going, oh, my God, there's Diana Ross. Or, you know, like you, it's incredible to see the most famous people you've ever seen getting really excited about them seeing other famous people. Yeah. That, was, that blew my mind when I was here first. Now I don't care. Of course. Now I, yeah. Now you've seen it. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Is there, has there been anyone that you've acted with where you're like, I don't too nervous i don't know if i can i don't know if i can do my thing in front of this i think i have to take a moment there was a little bit of that with tina fey yeah oh nice. partly because 30 right yeah, yeah when you go off piste a little bit you know if you go off your center so when i went and did 30 rock that wasn't my kind of thing you know and i wasn't as comfortable or confident and there's they were a crack troop of 
performers going on there and Tina is so man she's writing it and she's just so funny and smart and everyone's just like so quick there and why don't you fuck her (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) you can cut that out no yeah uh i uh yeah so uh uh, she so actually going and being in the scenes with her and the rest of the ensemble <laughs> um, was quite intimidating at first, and uh, and so I was a bit nervous about that kind of going. I you've written this and now I'm going to do it, and you haven't seen me. Like I didn't audition for this; I was just kind of offered it, and you have no idea really whether I'm going to be able to do this, and I don't have any idea whether I'm going to be able to do this, and uh, so that was quite scary. So it's not so much like. Maybe it's because I have a massive ego. There is no actor that I am. I expect the other actor to feel like that about me. Right. Uh, not that I, you know, I, <laughs> I, but, but I don't, I feel like I know what I'm doing with right. acting, you know, and I, and I don't really think about, I, I don't think about it being some kind of like competition is the wrong word, but you know, the, the idea of if someone else is really good, that helps you. That sure. helps me. Like, uh, you just react off people. And so, and I think the better someone is in a way, the more they disappear, the, more, the less it seems like acting. So it's not intimidating in that sense. It's when you go off your comfort zone, then it becomes really scary. Did you fuck Tina? Because I think we all want to talk about it. <laughs> Are you? I mean, I want to. Leslie Snipes. Fuck, fuck Tina? Tina? You know what I was thinking? Is, I know you're embarrassed that I won't show it to anybody, but. You actually made a video for me when we first dated when you were like high on dentist drugs when you'd just gotten your tooth pulled out. Yes. And that's the story of you and Tina oh, that's falling true, yeah. in love that's on true. Rock. That is true, yeah. <laughs> Our characters meet in a in a dental waiting room when we're on drugs. And then we find that we've got our each other's numbers in our phones and then we're like, Oh, we must meet this person. And that is actually I did I had um I can't remember what I had. No, I think I had like tooth an implant. Pulled. Oh, was it a tooth pulled? Yeah. So I had some dental thing going on and uh, they gave me these drugs that knock you out. And I had promised Sarah, I think I promised you, or maybe mm-hmm. I just decided to myself that I would video myself doing a message when I was coming round from the drugs. And the extraordinary thing is when, when I got home later on, I looked on my phone to find it and I did find it. And I looked at it, and it was like, oh, there we are. And then I found one that I made before that one. So I remembered the one that I made, but I also made one that I didn't remember. And, and when I watched that, that's the one that's very funny. You know? Yeah. <laughs> what They're did... both very funny. Yeah. I find them very romantic, but I know that you're on drugs, and you might not still feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was making it for Tina Fey. Oh, yeah. In the first one. The first one, I think, was to Tina. The second one was to Sarah. (laughs) Hmm. What are you guys going to do for the rest of the night? What's the rest of your night like? Do you have dinner? Do you just go home and watch a movie? We're going to have a fight about Tina Fan right home. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a dinner date. I need yeah. to stop by the store. What do you need, lemons? Because it was lemon. Are you fucking Tina Fey? <laughs> <laughs> what we can't do is go home and watch Project Runway because we watched all the ones we've missed last night. Yeah, yeah. You're still watching Project Runway? I haven't watched it in a couple seasons. It's still great, <clears throat> but... um. We can't watch Fargo because we've both watched it all now. Yeah. 
but he watches like I'll get him into something and like, I'll go this is stupid and I know you're fancy but I watched this show called The Bachelor then we'll watch it and I'll fall asleep and I'll wake up to him going like why would he say that to her I get very involved <laughs> I really do this is so why I can't upset. watch those things I get so involved this is why I can't watch horror films because I kind of go this stuff happens this happens in life this shouldn't be entertainment clowns kill clowns kill people have you not heard of the, of the clown killer small children who are buried in Indian pet cemeteries yes come they back come back to life people. but this stuff happens and, and I get very involved with what's going on and so you know watching The Bachelor I, she falls asleep and then I can't stop watching I have to watch every single one and I'm like, I get so worked up about it and so upset. Other people don't give a shit. They watch it, go, yeah, it's great, and move on with their life. I can't move on with my life! Now you need to get her into Doctor Who. <sighs> She'd never go for Doctor Who, I don't think. Yes, I would. I you would just... love it. Is it like Law it's... & Order? No, it's too much like magic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like Law & Order meets Space and Sherman and Mr. Peabody and... History, but I'm so Doctor Who adjacent. I mean, so my closest friends are obsessed with Doctor Who. Yeah, Matt and Karen came to your fucking party. Uh, yeah, and I had about four friends that almost died. Yeah, and couldn't even like deal. Rob Schraub. <laughs> Rob Schraub, obviously. But then there were other ones that I was really surprised. It was like I, I can't Matt Smith. I, I I don't even know what to say. I can't say. I can't even talk to him. I, there was a there was a time where my name was in the mix for Doctor Who, <laughs> and I did do one episode. Um, Neil Gaiman wrote an episode, and he mm-hmm. asked if I would do um, the voice of an asteroid in it, which I did. Um, but oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, <laughs> your face when you recognized what he was saying was the best thing I've ever seen. God damn it! <laughs> in the episode where the TARDIS becomes personified, yes, I'm the Doctor's wife. Yes, I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. Shut up, Kyle. <laughs> Well, that was that was me, uh, and uh, that and Lucian, come on, I man! And what I are wanted, you doing? I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be Doctor Who, where Doctor Who regenerates, and just for three seconds, you see a Doctor Who who's like something really extreme, and then and then regenerates again. And, and becomes Peter Capaldi or whatever. Like, someone right. really, really, like, that could never, like, they would never have right, right, that right, right, as Doctor right. Who. And, uh, but then forever, there would be one Doctor who was that. <laughs> oh, just one? Yeah. Well, just... they sort of did that. They sort of did that with, uh, are, do you still watch the show? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's weird because, <laughs> okay, now just, Earlier we were having this conversation about like the performance being far from what's inside. Mm-hmm. And so the performance of that agreement sounded like maybe you haven't watched the show in a little oh, while. Oh, no. Funnily, no, I'm saying that because I actually I, I, I watched a lot of Doctor Who the other weekend. Oh, okay. I, I slightly freaked myself out with how much I watched it. Because I hadn't been watching it. I've been watching it sparingly. Oh, it so gets filmed in Cardiff, which is in course. Wales, which is where I come from. I have a lot of friends who worked on it. Russell T. Davis, of I was course. in youth theatre with. He was the first man oh. I ever saw in a dress. Um, <laughs> Edward Thomas, who was a production designer on it. We were at school together. Very good friends. Julie Gardner, who sort of was behind launching it again. I, was in, I did sixth form college with. Like, I've got a lot of ties to it. Um, and uh, and I've sort of checked in every now and again, and I watch it every now and again. But then uh, the other weekend I watched it pro- 
12 hours straight. <laughs> so I was feeling a little guilty then when you well, said Well, John Hurt is the, doc, is the one where you just get yeah. him for a second. Well, that was great. Yeah, I watched that. Eccleson! <laughs> yeah. Yeah that, was, yeah, that was wonderful. That was very moving, that, I thought. And Tom Baker as well, coming back in and all that. I loved all that. Oh, yeah, I was... Uh, yeah, I mean, that... But John Pertwee was my Doctor Who. That was my... A lot of uh, everyone, uh, you know, as in as much as I think we associate, I mean, I think Tom Baker is the one where yeah, people the, the curly hair one and the, the iconic scarf, scarf and everything. But yeah. I think if you asked, uh, I think if you ask most most Brits, like over the age of like thirty five, maybe they would say John Pertwee. Well, I was I was on the cusp mm-hmm. betwixt Pertwee and Baker, right? And so, um, so I saw more of Tom Baker. Like I was, I was more. Uh, of an age to watch that. But John Pertwee was like this strange dream of yeah. my past. I remember an episode with John Pertwee on a boat with a dinosaur, a sort of Loch Ness monster or something out in the sea. And the, the effects were so bad. But it was just, <laughs> I was at that age where it's like you're on drugs all the time. Like yeah. Everything is slightly hallucinogenic when you're about four. Well, yeah, especially, especially that show because of the production values. Mm. And also... In our country, watching it on PBS, which was a strange, which was, PBS was like, it was a little bit of a mindfuck because PBS was, well, this is the Sesame Street and then weird, serious programming (laughs) channel. Well, you see, Sesame Street was what used to freak me out when I was a kid in Britain, watching that. Because seeing the guy with the, the, the cakes... Who would fall down well, the stairs? Do you remember? Yeah, apple that. Green pie. Yeah, apple all green pies. Apple green pies. That used to freak right. me out. We used to get occasionally something from America that you'd just get one of, and then it was gone. Like HR puff and stuff. Oh yeah. I spent years and years and years of my life saying to people, "It was this guy, the guy from Oliver, mm-hmm. and he had like Jack a Wild. flute thing, and there were these weird. And no one knew what I was talking about for years. I thought I just made it up, and then eventually <laughs> someone went HR Puff and stuff. I went to Amoeba, I bought HR Puff and stuff on DVD, went home, and finally. And what a gateway to uh, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, yeah. Far Out Space Nuts. In fact, that t- when I went of- to Amoeba and got that, I also got something else. I I I sort of did. Two of them in one go. There was H.R. Puffer stuff, which had been an enigma to me for years and years. But there was another thing called the singing ringing tree. Now, if anyone does not know what the singing ringing tree is, I beg you, I implore you to watch it. It is one of the strangest things I've ever seen. I think it's maybe Hungarian. And I think it's maybe from the late 40s, early 50s, maybe. Um, And it's a, a sort of fairy tale story about a man who gets turned into a bear and and there's a a tree in a garden that's guarded by a little person who's a evil wizard and there's a weird fish monster in the river that's I mean, it's very strange oh and God. it's very eastern european did you find it and maybe? it is brilliant is yeah, it on like youtube german, or something from, well, oh it's german, german okay from 1957 oh there you go. 1957 it was story story the styles of the brothers grimm yes it's just very peculiar it's very sort of disturbing at times oh that's all right, but one, so check that out. Definitely check the singing ringing tree. Anyway, I've I that because that had been serialized on British kids TV one summer holidays or something when I was really young, and I'd watched it and been so freaked out by it. And as as apparently a lot of it, Mark Gatiss, who writes for yeah. you know Doctor Who and sure, he also the same thing. He'd seen that and it sort of stayed with him. It's freaked out a whole generation of kids <laughs> in our country who sort of came across it one day, and uh, and then never knew what it was. It just never came up. There we are. I'm watching it now. Look at oh, that. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's so weird. It's like weird Technicolor. Yeah. It's that brilliant Technicolor. 
and mixed with really weird effects. If you can like fast forward and look at the the guy when he's in the bear suit, you've never seen anyone in a bear outfit like this. It's very peculiar. Oh my god, it's like Wilfred. Yeah. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, Jesus Christ. As a kid, that would scare the <laughs> it's shit. Terrifying. It's on it's on YouTube. Just look up Singing Ringing Tree. There's an hour and 11 minute and then you have to experience a few things. One, you have to experience the bear. Uh second, you have to experience the little person wizard uh and and you have to the best thing is the fish that comes up in the river later on you have to watch that it's all right amazing. is it it's in hungarian it's well what it is is that it becomes it's been dubbed by someone so you can see that they're talking in the background so it's even fucking creepy it's so everything about it is creepy all right he just gave her a pile of garbage like it was a baby the bear, and now she's being sucked into like a weird snow quicksand. There, there he is! There he is! The little wizard! Oh, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> it's so strange. All right. And not a lot of views, actually. Not a lot of no, views. No, no. So may, I, I hope, I urge you all to go on YouTube and watch The Singing Ring Tree. And, and you can get it on DVD. I bought it that day, the same day as I bought HR Pump and stuff. Although, watch Masters of Sex first. Uh, absolutely. Or well, maybe at the same time. At this, oh my god! I'm hoping the Master of Sex will morph into the singing, <laughs> the singing tree. Eventually. tree yeah. <laughs> so you're just going to bring it to the writers. You're just the writers like, so why does Masters put on a bear suit? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's experimenting with fetishism. Well, I think we should go for that '50s Technicolor <laughs> look, definitely. So he's riding a horse through a weird background that two grips are basically just—it's a dream sequence <laughs> that lasts on. for the most of the season. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, this was lovely chatting with you. And Sarah Silverman, I'm so glad. I am so... Being able to travel with you on this tour made the tour so much better. Likewise. Because it's such a... It's such a... It's so so lonely to travel. Just be like, I'm on a plane alone. And I'm just sitting in my fucking hotel. And, like, it's so sad. It's nice that... It's one of the reasons why I wanted this tour was just like, oh, my friends are on it. It's nice. Yeah. It's been really fun. Although... There was someone warned me, you know, like when when like most of us from the tour were on the same plane, they were like, "No, don't get all the same plane, scatter out." Yeah. The whole tour is on the same. <laughs> Why'd you put that thought in my head? <laughs> but it's been fun. Are you doing the next couple? Or are you? I'm doing yeah, the rest of them. Me too. You are you doing the rest of them? Except for Texas, I'm doing Salt Lake. I'm doing oh. Seattle, Salt Lake, and. Denver, and then uh, Mountain View and Irvine. Right. But I, yeah. I wanted to end mine in locally. I didn't. I, I had so many weekends of travel. It's. I remember the when I first started the tour, and I was in between weekends in New York, and I was like, "Wait, how many? Do I, am I almost done? How many?" And I had only done four of sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you do a run of a play as well. You do the first like three performances and you go, Oh that's right. we must be near the end now. No, you've got another six months. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe maybe they'll extend it beyond that. <laughs> In the same. Yeah. But uh it was- it's a great show. I've seen it folks. It is amazing. The Oddball Tour. Go and see it. Check it out. Which one did you see? I saw the very first one in Boston. Oh. It it was actually the fourth of the tour, but the first oh, one. Oh, the first one that oh, right. you did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, the others were the first one that mattered. The others were BS. <laughs> yeah. oh, I don't, well, I was in. Uh, I don't. Aww. It's fun. I, I enjoy the tour, but it is. I, I don't. I don't know if after this tour, I would opt to perform for ten thousand people again, yeah, like to do stand up, because it's a lot of. It's ta- talking to ten thousand people. You know, I, I don't have like super fast jokes on. Jo- you know, it's like here's a little bit of a story. You know, and it. I kind of likened it to 
Sometimes it can be Lichen. like... Oh, shit! Oh, no, it's a pun! Oh, what's happening to me? <laughs> Finally, my evil plan is taking hold. What do you like in it, too, doll? I'm sorry. That pun was the crown jewel of... Oh, uh... no! What? What happened? Uh... It's like, I think it's like uh, if you ever tried to pick up a blanket by yourself... There's no way to do it. It's going to set like there's like oh I got this to pick up but then the fucking load, you know? Like it's it's so strange to mm. try to manipulate an audience that size. It's pretty advanced wizardry. Mm. You're doing great. I think you just like just just focus on the first four rows. Yeah. I just started going into the crowd and fucking around with people cuz I love I love doing that. Me too. It's fun. Um, well, I, that's it. That's the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. You Martin delight- Sheen. Martin Sheen. Yeah, Martin Sheen, everyone. <laughs> what do you get? Uh, have a good night. And I hopefully will see you at one of the... Are you coming to the Irvine show? Uh, yeah, hopefully. When's that one? It's, it's two weeks know. from... A couple of days. A week from Saturday. Saturday. A week from Saturday. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a week from uh, Saturday. I think I'm away then. Oh. Unfortunately, I'm going to do a documentary in Wales about our political system. Oh. So that's Britain's Oddball Comedy Festival. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I like to do in my spare time. Um, well, uh, normally we t- say we sign off the podcast by saying "Enjoy your burrito," but even much be- I like to ask people with better accents than I do to say it. Would you sign us off? Oh, certainly. Uh, this has been uh, Michael Sheen uh, on the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and now please, I urge you to enjoy your burrito. Okay, but now do it as your dad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, hello, uh, all you nerdists out there. Uh, Myrick Sheen here saying, enjoy your burrito. Good dismount. <laughs> the end. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Carbonite.com. Carbonite is online backup made easy. Plans start at just $59.99 a year. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code NERDIST to get two bonus months with purchase.